your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Amos. And we're looking at Amos chapter 3 uh, this evening. Amos chapter 3, and then we'll, uh, before we get started here, just uh, remind ourselves of uh, who Amos is. Uh, Amos uh, was a layman. He was not a uh, preacher, or uh, he, I guess God called him to be a prophet, but he was just a, a justa, all right? He was a justa. Well, we talked a little bit about that. Uh, he was a fig-picking sheep herder, uh, and, uh, or a shepherd, we could say. Uh, and you might uh, feel like uh, Amos maybe felt uh, inadequate for the job that God had called him to do. But he was willing to do it, and uh, we all sometimes feel a little inadequate. But uh, Robert Murray McShane said, It's not great talents God blesses so much as a great likeness to Jesus. Now you can think, perhaps uh, through uh, church history and through more recent times, of some humble beginners, uh, some that started out uh, in a very humble way. I think of Dwight Moody. Uh, He was a shoe salesman in Chicago. He became a preacher, an evangelist. Uh, He was a country boy that uh, preached the gospel uh, of kindness and forgiveness in the city. And uh, it's too bad there's not a good uh, evangelist in Chicago today. There's probably some good preachers there, but uh, Chicago needs uh, some some revival there as well, Uh, some uh, preaching by Moody perhaps. But he started out just as a shoe salesman. Uh, There was uh, Billy Sunday. Uh, he was a, a baseball player, and uh, uh, he became a uh, very fiery evangelist. Did a great uh, work around the country. They built those uh, Billy Sunday Tabernacles. Uh, they were kind of temporary uh, meeting places uh, for his uh, campaigns there. Uh, there was William Carey, uh, sometimes called the father of modern missions. Uh, he uh, also was a shoemaker, not a shoe salesman, but he was a shoemaker, and um, uh, he had called of God to go to the mission field, and he ended up editing and translating the Bible in 36 languages in India. Uh, then a couple, uh, three more here, uh, Gladys Allward, she was a parlor maid in London. She became a missionary to China. David Livingston, a uh, boy with a dream for China, and then ended up in Africa, and uh, not only uh, did some mission work, but explored some areas that were... Uh, made open to missionaries. Uh, John Bunyan, he was a mender of pots and pans. And God used him to uh, write uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And so you have these who were uh, very humble beginnings, kind of like Amos, and God used them in a great way. Again, uh, that quote I gave you earlier, it's not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. Now we come to Amos here. And Amos, uh, his uh, messages here uh, really uh, had a purpose, and that purpose was to warn Israel. In chapters 1 and 2, we found eight accusations, uh, kind of a uh, target dartboard analogy uh, uh, from the surrounding countries and God's judgment upon them, and then zeroing in on Israel. 
Uh, in chapters 3 through 6, we're going to have three sermons, and today we're just going to look at one of them here in chapter 3. And then in chapters 7 through 9, there are going to be five visions. But chapter 3 picks up on the point of Israel's judgment. That's what we talked about last uh, Sunday evening. And remember, Israel was enjoying a time of peace and prosperity, so-called religious revival, you could say. But um, in our study, we're going to see a number of questions that are asked by Amos. And uh, we want to ask ourselves these questions as well, uh, or some questions that are very uh, relevant to what was asked by Amos. But the first question I would ask, why do people have a difficulty in believing God is a judge? Why do people uh, have difficulty in believing that God is judged? You know, sometimes they just want to say, think as God is a, a uh, benevolent old man up in, the, in heaven uh, and a God of love. But God is also a God that judges. And so people have a hard time uh, recognizing that. But notice with me, as we try to answer that question, a unique relationship. A unique relationship. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, what underlines God's anger and his heartache in all of this is that these were special people. These were his people, God's people. They were chosen of God. In fact, the covenant name of God, Lord, and we usually find it uh, in that sense, uh, in this sense, uh, in the scriptures, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, uh, it's used more than 80 times right here in the book of Amos, as God refers to himself, reminding them over and over and over again of the special relationship to him. Now, we remember that dark, horrible portrait that was painted of the seven nations that surrounded Israel. Uh, We talked about how that was life without God. It's destructive, it's manipulative, it's ruinous for all people. And who would show the nations a different way? Well, it's important for us to understand the shift in tone when God looks at Israel. You see, their sin registers differently in his heart than the sins of these other nations do. Yes, God is angry with their sin, about their sin. And when the people of God sin, it's not so much as breaking rules as it is about betraying a loved one. It's personal. And so, uh, as the title of our message tonight indicates, privilege brings responsibility. And often we take advantage of, quote, being family, don't we? You know, being in a family, you have special privileges. And yet, Israel was chosen to be blessed of all nations. Uh, God's gracious uh, choice doesn't give them or us a right to disobey him. Now, in many times uh, in the prophets, uh, even in, uh, in the New Testament, in the book of James, as we've memorized chapter 4, uh, but uh, he calls 
the Israelites, adulterers. And the word he uses most often to describe sinfulness is adultery. Uh, That is in a sense in which, uh, as the called out people of God, they had forsaken that wonderful relationship that they had with God. So what about us? Because of what Christ has done, because of uh, the fact that we've been called to be his people, uh, we are welcomed as the friends of God. We're no longer enemies who are estranged from him. But look at that in the context of the way we often live out our lives as the people of God. You know, most of the time, we are far more concerned about what other people think. Uh, We're more concerned about securing our position in the world. We're more concerned about feeling good about others. And somehow, we think about justifying our existence to others. uh, Needing the applause or the the, uh, approval of other people. And what, and what is it that we're bartering away when we focus on those kinds of things? One writer said, we're seeking the approval of people, all of whom will be dead in the next 50 years or so. Uh, really, they're small potatoes compared to the favor of an eternal God. So in the same way, Israel was bartering away their covenant relationship with God. But even in the midst of his judgment, God in his mercy and his loving care for them continues to reach out to them. Have you ever thought or said or heard said, you know, I'm one of God's children, I'm one of God's kids, I'll ask forgiveness when I'm through with my sin? You know, that's uh, again where we think, well, I've, I'm a part of the family, I've got a, you know, some special... Uh, I can have some special recognition there. I'm one of God's, so I'll just ask forgiveness when I'm through. Well, can we sin without impunity? That means, uh, can we sin without exception or immunity? Uh, Can we sin and get away with it? Or is there a higher obligation to holiness? Uh, If we were going to look at some examples of how privilege brings responsibility as Christians, uh, just a a few examples. Some possible examples would be, you know, to work for God in a ministry, whether it was a paid person or a volunteer. Uh, That privilege brings a responsibility. You know what? To be married is a privilege, but it brings responsibility. And also to be single. You know, it doesn't make any difference whether you're married or you're single. That brings, uh, it's a privilege that brings on uh, a a responsibility. Uh, We're to have the responsibility of redeeming the time. Uh, To have children, to be parents. Boy, that's a big responsibility. But it's also a wonderful privilege. Uh, To have wealth is a privilege, but it has responsibility with it. To have a job, a position, or have a level of, uh, uh, in a a job that uh, is uh, important or more important than uh, just being a common worker. Even a common worker has a responsibility. And so you can hardly look at anything in life uh, 
Whereas we as believers have a wonderful privilege just to be alive. But it brings responsibility. Uh, to whom much is given, much is required. So what have you been given? What has God given to you? What has God entrusted to you? And so we have a unique relationship with God uh, that the world does not have. And with that great privilege brings responsibility. Now notice, secondly, as we move on here, a, an inevitable judgment. An inevitable judgment. Verse 3 through 8. It says uh, here, uh, uh, begins some questions here in verse 3. Uh, each of the seven questions in verses 3 through 6 kind of reflect a cause and effect relationship. And so Israel's sin uh, brought on her own judgment. And so Amos begins, and the first one is a well-known question there in verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? If two people are walking together, they must have, uh, have an, appoint, an appointment to do so. Now I know that in our uh, time of mass transit and we, uh, we go on airplanes and buses and, and trains and so forth, normally strangers don't travel together. Uh, you don't uh, uh, just go downtown and say, hey, you want to go to Milwaukee with me? You know, I don't know this guy. I don't know this person. Uh, normally strangers don't travel together. Usually it's two people that are walking together and uh, it's, it's a, uh, you have something in agreement. You have a place to go. Uh, you have a, a way to get there. A young couple who hadn't been married very long were walking down the street arm in arm, and all of a sudden uh, she turned and stamped her little foot and started walking back toward their home. But he kept going. You see, they weren't walking together anymore uh, because there had been a disagreement. So can two walk together except they be agreed? Here's a cause and effect. The cause, there must be agreement if you're going to walk together with God. Uh, the effect, you will walk with him when you are in agreement. Now this doesn't mean that you say, well, God, you need to come over and agree with me. <laughs> now, that's not the way that works. You and I have to go over on his side. We have to agree with him. And uh, when uh, someone says, you know, God rides triumphantly in his own chariot, and if you want, don't want to get under the wheels of that chariot, you had better get aboard and ride. After all, God is carrying through his purpose in this world. And so if we're going to agree, uh, walk with God, we're going to have to agree with him. Can two walk together except they be agreed? That's the first question he asked. Then he asked, will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Now, this is one of those trick questions about does a, when a tree falls in the forest, does it make a noise? You know, okay, that's not that kind of a question. But will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? That's in verse 4. Uh, if a lion roars, it usually means he's got something uh, uh, to uh, attack or to, to, to eat. A lion moves about stealthily and quietly and silently, uh, and he's noiseless until... He pounces on the prey. And when he's captured his prey, then you can hear him roar. The next question is, will a young lion cry out of his den if he hath taken nothing? 
Well, the little lion doesn't make a sound because he knows mama told him to keep quiet while she's away getting something for him to eat. But when she comes back with his supper, then he lets out a cry, but not until then. Again, you can see the cause and effect uh, in play here. So God roars against Israel for their sin. And the judgment of God is going to follow their iniquity. Another question he asks here, can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Now, that's in verse 5. A bird, uh, if a bird is in a trap, uh, someone must have set it. Uh, traps don't get out there by themselves, do they? Now, you know, <laughs> I've seen some people setting some traps in our neighborhood. Uh, but... Uh, uh, a jinn, that's what a jinn is in, in the scripture here. Uh, of course, a bird is not going to get caught in a snare, uh, nor anything else is going to get uh, uh, caught unless a trap has been laid. So then the next question related to that, shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Now that's disappointing, isn't it? If you set a trap and uh, you don't ever catch anything. Uh, a man is not going to keep on setting a trap if he doesn't catch anything in it. You'll say, I, that's it, I quit. Well, God will not withdraw the Assyrians from snaring Israel here. Uh, that's where this is going to come into play here with Israel. And then, shall a trumpet be blown in a city and the people not be afraid? That's in verse 6. <clears throat> if the trumpet sounds... Uh, that would be calamity is near. Now that's the way they used it back in the Bible days there. Uh, they would use the trumpet to sound an alarm. Do we have that kind of thing today? Do we have any trumpets that sound the alarm today? Well, yes. Uh, you have a tornado siren. And uh, if that trumpet blows, that means something's going to happen. Uh, uh, we have an air raid siren. Well, we hope we don't have anybody coming to bomb us, uh, but that would certainly be a trumpet that would be relevant to today. See, God has said that he's going to judge the people and that judgment is coming. And it's foolish to fail to respond. Uh, it should have an effect on their lives. That's what these questions are. They're cause and effect questions. But they're not listening to the prophet they're not listening any more than our nation is listening to the word of God. And then there's one more question here. Shall an evil shall there be evil and the Lord hath not done it? Now, <clears throat> this can be confusing if we're not careful because we need to understand the word evil in this case. Evil doesn't mean something which is sinful or wrong here. It means calamity or judgment. Amos is saying, shall there be a calamity in the city, a judgment upon the city, and the Lord has not done it. This means that there is no such thing as an accident in the life of a child of God. This means that there is no such thing as an accident for us. There must be a cause for the effect. God is not moving uh, the universe in a foolish, idle manner. Therefore, when calamity strikes, there is a lesson to be learned 
and there no doubt will come a judgment upon our nation for its sin. God the lion is about to roar here. God is about to spring the trap. God was about to blow the trumpet of duress. And God was about to bring about calamity or judgment. Now, in verse 6, the second part of verse 6 there, uh, it says, Shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? God is in control of the universe. We could say that God sends disasters. Uh, He's the creator. He created the wind. Christians often try to get God off the hot seat by blaming the devil. Well, the devil did it. Uh, Or uh, the Democrats did it. Or the Republicans did it, you know. Or they try to explain things by the existence of a primary and secondary cause. There is a primary and secondary cause, but God is the one who controls both. And he controls the devil as well. I think Isaiah is very clear on that. Uh, Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all things. So the question is, do you believe in Mother Nature or do you believe in Father God? These uh, meteorologists that always say, well, Mother Nature was upset today, you know. Well, I, believe, I choose to believe in Father God. Uh, is, there a, is it a possibility of a freak act of nature? Uh, is there such a thing as luck and chance in our universe? If, we, uh, if so, we are people most pitiful. Now verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. There was a well-known insurance company that used cartoons to advertise their product. And one cartoon's pictured a piano falling upon, from an upper story window toward the unsuspecting fellow below. And as it's coming down, speeding down to its destination, a friend asked him, uh, by the way, what's the name of your insurance company? Acme Insurance, of course. Why do you ask? Well, disaster often comes unexpectedly. Uh, we don't... Uh, expect disaster. It comes usually as kind of a surprise to us. Israel didn't realize the full weight of God's judgment was about to fall on them. But the God of grace doesn't send the disaster without sending a warning. Just as few examples you you find in scripture, uh, the destruction of Gomorrah, uh, Genesis 18 In verse 17 it says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? Uh, That's a very specific uh, warning there. A more general warning you find in Psalm 25 verse 14, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show show them his covenant. Even from the Lord Jesus you find in John 15 and verse 15, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what the Lord doeth, But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. And so, God is going to bring a judgment, but first he brings a warning. Notice verse (coughs) 8. 
The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord hath spoken, who can but prophesy? The prophets gave God's message to Israel. Amos is giving a warning specifically to the northern kingdom at this point, Israel. Again, our problem today is not that people do not have the word of God. The problem is they will not hear the word of God. And his warnings are given in his word. The Bible is more up to date than tomorrow morning's newspaper. Uh, After all, tomorrow morning's newspaper will be out of date by noon and when the afternoon edition comes off the press, but the word of God will just be as good the next day and all uh, in the future till the end of time. It's always been God's method to reveal information to those who are his own concerning future judgment. You think about Noah's day. God gave Noah 120 years to warn his generation. God let Abraham know ahead of time about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God always reveals things to his own people. Forewarning to Joseph, you think about that, in Egypt of seven years of famine. Elijah forewarned of a drought. There would be no rain. And so God's method is to warn of impending judgment. Now the New Testament counterpart of this is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. And there, verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Uh, The author there says God always disciplines those he loves. And uh, God cares enough about you and about me not to leave us just where we are. He cares enough to draw us deeper into a relationship with him. And he prunes things uh, in our lives that are hindering us from knowing him. uh, uh, Hindering us from living for him to our fullest. uh, Appropriating his presence and power in our lives so that we can be the people of God. And so God mercifully calls out to us and he draws us to, to himself. And the message of Israel and to us is, are you listening? Are your hearts and minds open to the work and of the Holy Spirit to show you the areas of your life where you need to be surrendered to him? Over and over, he pounds this idea into our heads. He says, pay attention. The Lord is speaking. Listen. Please listen. Now, my responsibility is to give you God's word, which contains warnings. Your responsibility is to receive it and take heed to it. Privilege brings responsibility. And you've been privileged to hear the word of God today. That brings a responsibility with it. So we have a unique relationship. We have an inevitable judgment. And then we have an unparalleled oppression. The rest of the chapter, verses 9 through 15, deals with the Assyrian invasion. In those verse 9, uh, it says here, Publish in the places of Ashdod and in the palaces of the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria, and Hold the great tumults in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. Why, God, why does God summon the pagan nations to assemble on the mountains of Samaria? Well, God, in effect, is calling others to witness the sin going on in Israel. Ashdod was a prominent city of the Philistines, and stands 
here in this particular verse as a representative of Philistia. And from this vantage point, Israel could be viewed. Verse 10. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. They is Israel. So why does this say Israel's morality and lifestyle in comparison with the pagan nations? Ouch. Is our morality and lifestyle compared to that of the unbelieving world? You can learn a lot about a person by what makes him angry. And so it is with God. Verse 10 says, For they do not know to do right. Do we have a more of a problem knowing or doing the right thing? Well, let's see here how God's punishment fits the crime. There are two things in uh, verse 10. And they're going to be uh, fulfilled in verses 11 and 15. But two things. Who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. And we'll see how they're fulfilled here in verses 11 through 15. Reminds me of an old uh, television show called Beretta. Remember Robert Blake? Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. That was one of his famous sayings. Well, don't, do, don't sin unless you're going to be willing to be punished for it. And so notice, fourthly, a coming catastrophe. Verse 11. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out and dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, or God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. So here we have a coming catastrophe. In verse 12, in the first part, it talks about if a shepherd loses an animal, uh, then he would have to pay for it unless he can prove that a beast killed it. And he would prove that by bringing some part of uh, that animal that had been devoured. Kind of like Joseph uh, in his situation. His brothers brought back part of the coat of many colors that was dipped in goat's blood uh, to their father to show him that he was supposedly eaten by a wild animal. That was the proof. And so uh, it's what he's saying in verse 12. As a shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear. It's the proof. In uh, the picture here is to show the meager remains of God's chosen people. Oh, the Israelites will be saved like a leg of lamb sticking out of a lion's mouth is saved. And then in chapter in verse 12, in verse, the second part, he speaks of the idle luxury of the rich. 
He says there, So shall the children of Israel be taken that dwell in Samaria in a corner of a bed and in the Damascus in a couch. He's talking about the idle luxury of the rich. Verse 13. Hear ye and testify of the house of Jacob, saith the Lord, the God of hosts. Now, here we have the longest name for God in the Bible. It's the Lord God, the God of hosts. It's Adonai, Jehovah, Elohim, saw, saw, sit, ah, ah. Something to that effect. Uh, It literally means sovereign Jehovah, God of hosts. By the way, do you know what the longest word in the English language is? Anybody know that? It's smiles. You know why? Because there's a mile in between the first letter and the second letter. And everybody groans, right? That was free. No extra charge for that. But getting back here to our passage, verse 14. That in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Altars of Bethel, and of course of Dan, uh, God was indicting Israel for their sin. In the day he will judge them for their sins, he's going to visit the idolatry of the altars of Bethel. By the way, Amos, I think, was preaching in Bethel at this time. Uh, That's what we were told early on. And it was at Bethel, at least one of the golden calves uh, was there with it as an altar uh, of idolatry. And the altar at Dan seems to have ceased to function and may have been moved to Bethel. But that uh, may be why altars of Bethel are spoken of here in the plural. Notice that. Of the altars. So it means the, the one from Dan was moved to Bethel. And so uh, you have more than one. Uh, the original altar for the golden calf being the greater. The point is that the idolatrous altars would be destroyed when God judged Samaria. Now if you remember uh, Jeroboam. Hearing that name Jeroboam. Uh, during the divided kingdom. Uh, He established uh, Bethel and Dan as the chief sanctuary of Israel as a a rival to Jerusalem in Judah. Uh, 1 Kings 12, 28 uh, says, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves and said unto them, It is too much for you to go to uh, to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. That's how we get these two there and they were to be rival uh, uh, altars uh, because you know it's too far for you to go to Jerusalem. According to the law, people in danger would find refuge by grasping the horns of the altar. According to First Kings one and verse fifty, and Ad- Adonijah feared because of Solomon and arose and went and caught hold on the horns of the altar. Now. How would this change now? Well, here in verse 14, the horns of the altar shall be cut off. And they're going to fall to the ground. There will be nothing to grab a hold on. Of course, it was useless to grab hold on the horns of an altar anyway. You know, people are grabbing onto their idols even today. They think, well, this is going to give me security. 
Maybe it's the beautiful services they have in their churches. I'm going to grab a hold of that. Maybe it's the rituals. But these things are not holding back the judgment of Israel. It's not going to hold back the judgment of of people today. Now verse 15 is a denouncement of their luxury because they were not meeting the needs of the poor. They were addicted to affluence. And they were simply building bigger barns. The Chinese proverb says, To pretend to satisfy one's desires by possession is like using a straw to put out a fire. There was a letter sent to Charles Spurgeon from a church that was trying to raise some money. They asked him to come and speak at their fundraiser. But they wanted to know which of the church's houses he'd like to stay in. The cottage at the beach, or the cabin in the mountains, or their residence in town. He wrote them back and said, if you need money, sell one of your houses. And sometimes we get so used to having things that we can't see that they're really not that necessary. Someone has said, the poor you will have with you always. I mentioned this Gladys Allward, a missionary to China. She said, this was not an excuse to not help the poor, but it's taken from Deuteronomy 15 and verse 11. And you need to listen to the whole verse. Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 says, For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy, and to thy land. The Old Testament law made provision for all of God's people. Uh, Yes, there was servitude for a time. Uh, There were widows that were provided for. There were farmers who were allowed to... Gleaning. You know what gleaning is? That's uh, where you come in and you take what wasn't harvested. And uh, like Ruth did. And uh, there's no welfare role in Israel. The poor maintained their self-respect. They worked for what they received. Reminds me of a story I recently read. How many many people uh, will... uh, the cost of a new Corvette feed. This guy had a brand new Corvette. And someone asked him, I wonder how many people would have been fed for the money for that sports car. And he replied, he said, I'm not sure. I fed a lot of people in Bowling Green, Kentucky who built it. It fed the people who make the tires. It fed the people who made the components that went into it. It fed the people in the copper mine who mined the copper for the wires. It fed the people in Decatur, Illinois at Caterpillar who make the trucks that haul the copper ore. It fed the trucking people who hauled it from the plant to the dealer. And it fed the people working at the dealership and their families. You see, I have to admit, I really don't know how many people it fed. You see, what that is, and this is kind of a political thing, but it's uh, the difference between capitalism and socialism. When you buy something, you put money in people's pockets and you give them dignity for their skills. When you give something to someone for nothing, you rob them of their dignity. And so uh, that uh, 
is something I think we need to remember in our day when socialism is being promoted widely in our country today. Now, by the way, if you can afford a car like this, go ahead and buy it. Just remember to give me a ride, okay? But the question is then, getting back to what God is saying to Israel, what are we doing to meet those needs? What position would uh, God consider your hands in? Are they closed? Or are they cracked open a little bit? Or are they open? Or are they wide open? And we need to pray that Lord would give us hearts and eyes in our hands because it's not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. And I trust that uh, even the judgment that God was giving to the people of Israel at this time is a reminder to us of what God's judgment would be upon our lives as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven.